So as we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Sometimes it seems like the wrong people are ultra concerned about their spiritual life. There's people out there that don't know Christ as their Savior, who are not believing in Him as their Lord and Savior, but... They don't seem to have any concern for their future with God. And there seems to be no, no fear. But yet at the same time, I see people who are believers in Jesus Christ who sometimes seem to have an exorbitant amount of that fear. And so it seems like the people that are the most in danger of the wrath of God seem to have no concern for it whatsoever. And at the same time, people that have been delivered out from underneath that wrath of God sometimes are overburdened with it. Uh, What I mean, I guess, is simply this, is that Christians can sometimes be continuing to beat themselves up over guilt of things done in the past, even though you've already been delivered from it. The Bible says you've been forgiven of it, that your sins is now removed from you as far as the east is from the west. It's buried in the depth of the deepest sea. But we still struggle with it sometimes. And you know what I think causes that is on the one hand, the first group of people does not have a good understanding of the holiness of God. And I would put myself in that category at one time in my life. I just uh, always figured that I was fine with God. I wasn't overly concerned about my future. I wasn't overly concerned about the sin in my life. And the reason was because I just figured God was loving and, and that He was fine with me. I recited a memorized prayer at night before I went to bed, thought of Him now and then, and figured I was okay. But I did not understand the holiness of God and the fact that because of my sin, I was underneath His wrath, the Bible tells us. I was underneath His judgment. At the same time, there have been times in my Christian life since then, since I submitted to Jesus Christ and asked Him to be my Savior, there have been times where I dredge up things of the past and feel guilty and kind of beat myself up with the sin that has happened in my life in the past as well. If the first one is caused by not understanding the holiness of God, I would say the second one is a response to not completely understanding the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I remember when we were back in Washington in a church there and and there was a lot of sin that happened within the church, within the leadership of the church. And uh, we had to deal with that. And what happened was the people that were involved in this sin, they came forward at, the, at church and they confessed their sins to the congregation and asked for the forgiveness of the congregation. The congregation, of course, extended forgiveness to these people. And there seemed to be uh, repentance on the part of the individuals, forgiveness on the part of the church, and things began to move forward. But I remember a lady in our church came, and this would have struck her very personally because she was the wife of one of the men in leadership that was involved with somebody else. And she came up to me with concern, and she said, you know what, I'm really concerned that our church is not recognizing the holiness of God. This sin is a grievous sin that is happening, and we need to make sure that it doesn't just get swept under the rug and that the holiness of God is maintained and protected within our church. I said, I can see your point. I understand what you're dealing with, and I feel very sorry for you. I think that the holiness of God has been protected in the church in that there was a disciplinary process. In other words, the people that were involved in the sin, they were confronted for their sin. They were rebuked for their sin. They all actually even came before the church and apologized for their sin and said they were repentant and asked for forgiveness. I said, so that that is a process that God gave us that protects His holiness, that stands up for the holiness of God. 
But I went on to say, I said, there's another aspect too that has to be in balance here. And I said, you may be struggling with that. Whereas the the discipline process protected the holiness of God, we have to recognize that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was completely sufficient to pay for all of our sins, including the sins that you just mentioned. If those people have genuinely repented of their sins and they're trusting in Jesus Christ, then it is right for us to embrace them, recognizing that those sins are completely paid for. There's not some amount of humiliation that needs to be added on to them to help pay for their sins. There's not a certain time period that they need to suffer. That that doesn't exist because the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ completely paid for that sin. It's the same thing we see in in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthian people and he would say, you know what, there's some sin in the church that even the pagans aren't doing this. And he went on to talk, mention what that sin was. He said the church has been celebrating that they're so gracious that they can accept this person even with this sin that they're living in. He said the church should actually throw that person out. And so he called upon the church to protect the holiness of God and the sanctity of God and discipline that person out of the church because of their sin. But it's not the end of the story. When you read into 2 Corinthians and you get to chapter 2, you find the Apostle Paul mentioning the individual that was the first letter talked about. And what happened was the church obeyed and they cast that person out of church. He repented of his sin and came back to the church. And now the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he writes to that same church about that same man and he says, now you need to embrace him. Before, kick him out. Why? The holiness of God. Now, embrace him. Why? Because of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because of the completeness of the forgiveness that we have in him. Well, we're finding the same thing when we come to the book of Hebrews. When we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, we've seen that the Apostle Paul is warning these Christians, these people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but some of them, he's questioning the legitimacy of their faith because they're tempted to turn their back on Christ. And he starts out warning them severely. He's saying, you can't do that. Don't do that. If you do that, you're just like the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. Look at them. They didn't get to go into the promised land because of their disobedience which was a result of their unbelief. He's saying if you can turn your back on Jesus Christ, you have the same unbelief in you that will be causing your disobedience and turning your back on Christ. And all of about the last half of chapter 3, all the way up toward the end of chapter 4, he's been warning them. And he's saying, look, he's been warning them in a negative way. Look, don't turn your back on Christ because if you do, you'll be kept out of heaven. You'll face nothing but the judgment of God. He came toward the end of the passage that we looked at last week and he talked about as they would stand before the judgment of God, God's word would pierce down inside of them to their very heart, soul, spirit, joints, marrow, and lay them completely open and exposed before God and they would have to give an account. So he's been warning them, don't do this because of all the negative things that can happen, that will happen as you face the judgment of God. But now, in the passage we're looking at, he turns positive. He's given them negative reasons of why they should not turn back on Christ. Now he's given them positive reasons of why they should not turn back on Christ. But rather, let us hold fast our confession. And then in verse 16, let us draw near. So rather than depart from Christ, rather than backslide away from Him, but to to hold Him fast, to draw near to Him instead. Now they're going through some struggles and some trials and some uh, sufferings because of their faith in Christ. But He's telling them, even in light of all that, you really need to draw near. You really need to hold fast. And so He's given them the reasons why to escape the judgment of God to show themselves to be true believers. Now he's giving them because of the perfection of their high priest. Now he's picking up from a conversation he'd ended on back at the end of chapter 2. Well, now he's returning to that 
And let's consider that with him this morning is our perfect high priest. In fact, as we look at the at the passage in verse 14, it says, since then we have a great high priest. You know what? In the Bible, we can find the word priest used many times. We can find the word high priest used, and we never find the term great high priest. Only in referring to Jesus is it ever used as talking about our great high priest. So as we consider our perfect high priest this morning, there are five ways that I see within this passage that Jesus Christ shows himself to be perfect as our high priest. The first way that we see that he is perfect is that he is perfect in his position. Because notice what it says right off the bat. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Well, there are three heavens mentioned in the Word of God. There's the heaven that we think of where the birds are flying. Then there's the heavens, which is where the sun and the moon and the stars are. And then there's the heaven being the place where God dwells. And so Jesus Christ, of course, would have passed through all three of those on his way to heaven where God dwells. But the point that he's making here with this is that that is where Jesus is. He's passed through the heavens. Now, this is significant because when you think of the high priest, when the high priest for Israel came every year on the Day of Atonement to offer the sacrifice for the sins of the nation, where did he do it? He did it in the presence of God. Now, the the tabernacle, which is what Hebrews refers to, the word tabernacle means tent, and it was basically God's tent. And so back when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, God told them how to make his tabernacle, his tent, and they would all be living in tents as they traveled around. And he had this big outer wall, this big curtain around the outside, that established the walls of the tabernacle. And then inside of that, you had this holy place. And then inside of that, the holiest of all. And that is where the ark and the mercy seat sat, which signified the presence of God. And so the high priest, every year when he would offer his sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people, he would first offer a sacrifice for himself. And then he would offer a sacrifice of being purified himself. He would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. It's only on that day that the high priest could come in once a year into the presence of God, into that mercy seat, and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat from the sacrifice. And so the high priest went into a man-made tent, into a section within that that had a veil, a door that only he could go in, and only he, he could only go in there once a year. And with the proper sacrifice, and he could offer that sacrifice in the presence of God. But he's pointing to Jesus, and Jesus passed through the heavens. He didn't go to a man-made tabernacle or even the temple. By now, Israel has the temple, and they've been worshiping in the temple for years. It's been destroyed a couple of times, rebuilt a couple of times. But the the temple that David wanted to make for God, that Solomon got to make for God, has been built and and rebuilt a couple of times and they're worshiping in that and offering sacrifices there. But Jesus didn't offer up His sacrifice in the temple. No man-made building. He didn't offer up His sacrifice in the tabernacle. A man-made tent. Jesus, in, in offering His sacrifice, that He died on that cross and then He went into the very presence of God. When He ascended, He went through the heavens and He is sitting at the right hand of God. You see, the high priest could go in, had to come out. Jesus went in and He sat down. There's no seat for the high priest in the Holy of Holies. There's only a seat for God. His work was never done in there. Jesus' work was done. It was complete. So he went in and he sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus is our high priest. He's not just in some special tent or some special room within a holy building. He is in the very presence of God sitting at his right hand. And Hebrews makes a big deal about this. We already saw it in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 when it said he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. Notice it says after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 we find it again but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand 
of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. As our high priest, he didn't go in and offer the sacrifice to come out. He went in and then he stayed. He's still there. In fact, that's what Colossians tells us. That's where our thoughts should be. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then again in the book of Romans in chapter 8 and verse 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The job of the high priest was to go in to God, offer the sacrifice, which was an intercession for the people. He's interceding for the people. Forgive these people because of this sacrifice. And then he had to leave. Jesus Christ went into the very presence of God and he sat down at his right hand, place of privilege and honor, and he's still there. What's he doing? He's interceding for us. He's still there on our behalf. He's still interceding with the Father for our forgiveness. I love that because this means when I blow it, I know that already Jesus is talking to the Father. I, I died for that. I overcame. I rose again for that. He's stepping in on my behalf. He's representing me before the Father. He's interceding. In Hebrews, it focuses on that a little bit as well. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. His whole point is we have this access to God. We have this acceptance because to God because we have this perfect high priest. He's perfect in his position. Well, not only is he perfect in his position, but we also see that he's perfect in his person. He's referred to in two different ways. He's referred to by his name, Jesus, his human name, Jehovah saves. And he's also referred to in his divinity because he is the son of God. He had to be made like us in order to be our high priest. He had to take on our nature. He had to be a, a man in order to, to lay down his life for mankind. And so he took upon himself the nature of a man, but at the same time, he was still God. Now, it's beyond our ability to understand how all that works. Just as God is beyond our ability to understand in completion because of the depth of the person that he is. So Jesus Christ is perfect in his person. Not only is he perfect in his person, but he is also perfect in his pity. It says, for we, in verse 15, do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus Christ, he says, is able to sympathize with us. He's able to pity us. He knows what it feels like to go through what we go through. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be tempted, to be tested. You know that word sympathize? It means to suffer along with. It means to, to feel what they feel, to be a in right in there with them as they're going through something, as they're suffering. As I said, this picked up from where we left off in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17, if we're reminded, he says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we see he had to be made like us in order to be merciful, it says, to be faithful. In other words, in order to understand what we're going through as we endure sufferings, 
and temptations. He had to experience that to be able to know what we feel like. And so he did it. But I also love in the next verse, in verse 18, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That word help, if you remember when we were back in chapter 2, we talked about how that word was a word that was used to talk about a mother's response to the cry of her child. And we talked about an infant, and when an infant cries, how that even does physical things to a mother. That close connection. And that's the word that is used to describe the connection between us and Jesus Christ as our high priest. When we cry out, He feels it because He's our merciful high priest. He's our sympathetic high priest. He knows how to pity us because He has experienced what we're going through. Now this flows right into the next part. Is that not only is He perfect in His pity, but He's also perfect in His purity. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He does not have sin within Him. He doesn't have that sinful nature. This isn't just talking about uh, uh, only about the result of the temptation is talking about the nature of the individual Jesus Christ does not have sin within him. He is, the word literally means apart from sin. He was tempted in every point like as we are, but apart from sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I know earlier in my walk with Christ, I had a little bit of a struggle with that. And here's why. This was my line of thought. That if Christ doesn't have a sinful nature within him like I have within me, in other words, there's no propensity for him to sin. I have a propensity to sin because of my nature. If Christ doesn't have that propensity to sin, then does he really feel what I feel? Has he really experienced what I experience? And I've come to the conclusion that he has experienced temptation to a greater degree than I have, a much greater degree. Let me share with you why I think that. First of all, the fact that he doesn't have a sinful nature is not a problem. And the reason it's not a problem, in fact, it's a benefit, is when I was thinking, well, is he really a man? Is he, is he really human if he doesn't have this sinful nature? But when, I, when you stopped and think about it, and you go back all the way to the Garden of Eden, how was man created? When God got done creating man, he said, behold, everything is very good. Mankind wasn't created with a sinful nature. That's a foreign, it's alien. feels natural to us because we were born with it. We earned it in the garden by disobeying God, by rebelling. But it was not their natural state. They didn't have a propensity within themselves. I think that's why you know, Satan came and tempted them in the garden. Well, their temptation happened from outside themselves. There wasn't anything inside of them that was compelling them to do wrong or to disobey God. And so I realized that with Jesus, by not having the sinful nature, he's not less human. He's more human. Jesus, because he didn't have the sinful nature, was man as God intended man to be. But what about this idea of temptation? Can he still really feel what we feel? Because the Bible claims that he does if he doesn't have that sinful nature. I'd say absolutely yes. You know what? Satan is not like God. Satan can't be everywhere all the time. He's not, he's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. When I look at the world and I think of the work that he, he is doing and could be doing, I think uh, Satan has a lot bigger fish to fry than, than me. And so I doubt that I've ever been anywhere close to Satan in my life with him actually being in my presence. Now, there's lots of demons that work for him. I'm sure I've been around a lot of those. But I don't think I've ever gone head-to-head with Satan himself in struggling with temptation. 
You know what? Jesus did. In fact, Jesus did it so much worse. When you look at Adam and Eve, they were in a plush garden, had everything provided for them they ever need, uh, had all these comforts, all this provision of God, this fellowship with God. They had everything, and they blew it. Jesus came. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He's without food. He's without water. The wild beasts are in the, there, it says, so there's not the protection. He has it horrible. He has it desolate. And he overcomes. And he's one-on-one, face-to-face with Satan and all this temptation. Not only that, but I consider it this way. Uh, I read a couple weeks ago on the issue, and and, uh, this guy was talking about the temptation of Christ. And he said, you know, when you look at weightlifting, like Olympic weightlifting, you know, like with the deadlift where they go up to the big barbell and they take and push it up over their heads. He says, when you look at all those weightlifters that get up and they try to do that, and some of them get it up to their knees and drop it, some of them to their waist and drop it, some of them to here and drop it, some of them get it all the way up and hold it, and some of them hold it for the right amount of time with the right stability to actually accomplish the task before they throw that thing down. He then asked a question, who has experienced the pressure of that weight to the fullest? It's only the one that held it for the right amount of time. You see, the other ones that gave their effort, it obviously impacted them because they weren't able to get it up. It obviously was more than they could handle as they tried to hold it at different places or tried to get it all the way up. He says, but it's actually only the one that succeeds in the temptation that is successful. It's only the one that succeeds in the temptation that knows the full weight. And that's what Jesus is. We experience temptations and we go so far and then a lot of times we cave. We give in to temptation. You didn't experience that temptation to the full amount because you didn't ride it out all the way. You weren't successful all the way to the end. Jesus Christ was successful all the way to the end. And so He felt the full brunt of all of the temptation. He carried the entire weight. You know what? We've got to get away from the idea of looking at failure as a key to success in our world. You know, I remember... Back when uh, Magic Johnson was found to be HIV positive and we all got a little bit more insight into his personal life, which was horrible. And I remember people speaking about, you know, Magic Johnson, well, you know what, he's going he's gonna to speak out now on safe sex. And I thought, are you kidding me? Now, don't get me wrong. I think that there are, there are things that we can learn from failure. Absolutely. And we can learn, even in the Bible, we learn from people's positive examples and we learn from people's negative examples. So I don't want to discount Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson's life. But you know what? If I'm going to think about who do I really want to be a spokesperson for that safe sex, I want somebody that did it right, don't you? I don't just want somebody that can say, look, don't do what I did. I appreciate him saying, don't do what I did. But I don't want just somebody that says, don't do what I did. I did it wrong. I want somebody up there too that can say, look, I did it right and it's so fulfilling and it's so awesome. Well, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. We have the one that did it right. We have the one that overcame temptation, that carried the full burden, that went through the sufferings. The sufferings that I have in this life don't compare to the sufferings that He went through on my behalf. And so with the amount of suffering that He went through, can He understand my little bit of suffering? Absolutely. The suffering these Hebrews were going through, and they were going through a lot more than I have. When we read through chapter 10, we find that some of them are in prison. Some of them are having their property confiscated. Some of them have been arrested. They haven't yet. If we look up to chapter 12, they haven't yet resisted unto blood. So they haven't lost their life for it yet. But they have been going through some severe persecutions in their life. Can Jesus understand that? For crying out loud, He was drugged down Main Street being spit upon and the, and the hair pulled out of His beard and the crown of thorns drove into his head, carried the cross and mocked and ridiculed on his way out as they put him to a very violent death. Absolutely, he can understand that. You see, Jesus is perfect in his purity. He overcame for us. If we had a high priest that could feel 
what it was like to feel the temptations that we go through and the struggles we go through, but wasn't pure, it wouldn't gain us anything. But Jesus, Jesus is pure. And that's in contrast. Look into chapter 5. As we start into chapter 5 in the first three verses here, he's going to start comparing him to the high priests of old, of Aaron's line. And it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. So he's looking back at the high priests that they had before, and he's saying, look, they can understand us. Why? Because they were sinners too. It says, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The high priest had to go in and offer sacrifice for his own sins to be cleansed before God before he could bring the sacrifice for everybody else. And that's the point that he's making is Jesus didn't need a sacrifice for his own sins because he was pure. And it's only because of that. Think about that. If he had his own sins that he had to die for, he wouldn't be able to die for yours. And he wouldn't be able to die for mine. He wouldn't be any better than the old guys that had to offer up the lambs. So Jesus is perfect in his purity. Our, our high priest is, is perfect in his understanding of us. He's perfect in his purity. Not only that, but he is perfect in his performance. And that brings us to the last part of the passage and my favorite part. Because remember what we've been talking about. A couple of weeks ago, as we're looking at chapter 4, we got up to the point where it talks about the Word of God is like a two-edged sword, pierces right down into the core of our being. Remember we talked about how that was judgment. And he's telling these people, if you turn your back on Christ, you've got nothing but judgment. You're going to have to give an account for God, before God. And he knows every intention of your heart. You're laid wide open before him, completely exposed. And then all of a sudden, he goes to talking about Jesus being our high priest. Because of this, he can help us in our time of need. The time of need that he's referring to is the judgment where we're standing before God to give him an account completely exposed to him. That's our time of need. And he says we have grace at that moment. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have access. We can come before God confidently. We can go right to the throne of grace. Isn't that awesome? Think about it. What did the Old Testament people have to do to come to God? They had to go ask this other guy to do it for them. Here, I'll bring you my sheep. You sacrifice my sheep. I'll lay my hands on it while you kill it. You sacrifice my sheep. Take the blood in. Sprinkle it on the offering. Go represent me before God. That was it. You were shut out. The high priest pulled the veil aside, stepped in. Veil closed. You were shut out. You were outside the door. You were shut out of God's presence. Now, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us as our perfect high priest, he's passed through the heavens, sitting at the right hand of God, making constant intercession for us. Because of his pity and his purity, we have 24-7 access. And this is where we differ greatly with with the Catholic Church and their understanding of things. That's when you get to the New Testament, you know what you don't find in the church? You don't find a priest. There's a couple passages that talk about the fact that all of us are priests, but the point that it's making is that all of us have access to God. In the leadership of the church, when you read through the New Testament, the priest was an Old Testament office. They went and they represented the people to God. They went and offered the sacrifice. In the New Testament, what do we have? We only have the high priest. And that is only fulfilled by Jesus. He went in once for all to offer the sacrifice for our sins. He's sitting at the right hand of God now making intercession for us. So now we can go right to the throne of grace. There's nothing in between us. There's no confessional. There's no priest. There's nobody between us and God. That's the whole point of what Jesus did for us. In fact, as we go through the rest of the book of Hebrews, when you get up to chapters 8, 9, and 10, mostly 9 and 10, 
It's going to be pointing back to that old priesthood. It's going to say, look, they, they offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Why? Because they don't work. Jesus Christ, they were the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus Christ offered one sacrifice for all people for all time, and he sat down next to the Father. No more sacrifices. No more going to a priest. No more somebody between you and God. Your access is so open that you don't need any more help other than Jesus Christ. And he has helped you completely. You see, Jesus Christ is so perfect. It's because of him. You can't stand before God without him. But with him, no guilt in life, no fear in death. He is perfect in his performance for us. That's exactly why when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. No mediators. Nobody. You know what? I'll, I'll pray for you. You can pray for me. That's beneficial to help each other out that kind of way. But you know what? You need to go to God. You don't need me to do it. I'm not a priest. I'm a teacher. I'm a pastor, an elder, a bishop, a shelter. There are different names given to it in the Bible. None of them are priests. Because a priest is somebody who's in the middle. And I'm not in the middle. The only person you need in the middle is Jesus Christ. And he has done the work. And he's still at the right hand of the Father for you performing perfectly exactly what you need him to be.